Well, that's kind of a sneak preview of the series we're going to be launching in two weeks' time. I'm really excited about the series. We're going to be running it through the autumn up until uh, the beginning of December, looking at the kind of church that God has designed for us to be, uh, the kind of church that will impact and transform our city, uh, the kind of church Church Central really is. Uh, we're launching that in two Sundays' time. Uh, however, I'm just as excited about the series we're continuing with today uh, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter to nine. Uh, if you want to find it, go ahead and, and turn to it. While you're doing that, uh, I want to start with a question. Whose greatness, other than Jesus' greatness, because that would kind of be the obvious answer in this context, whose greatness, other than Jesus' greatness, do you most admire? Who is it that really inspires you? Do you have your favourite musicians and you follow their tweets and wear their t-shirts? Is there a sports person or athlete that you particularly count as your favourite? Is there someone that you really admire? I don't know, someone in your field of work or business or study, your favourite filmmaker or author or artist or whatever? Whose greatness do you most admire? And while you're thinking about that, how about considering these questions as well? What is it about their greatness that particularly impresses you? And just to make it ever so slightly more personal to you, what in your own life are you currently pursuing greatness in? Who are you trying to become? What are you trying to do with your life? What kind of conversations do you have with your family and friends about what you aspire to do and who you aspire to be and the greatness that you long to achieve in your life? I want you to try and hold those questions at least in the back of your mind as we dive into today's passage, because as we're going to find, thoughts of greatness were never far from the minds of the disciples. I'm going to pick it up in verse 37, Luke chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, after they had come down the mountain, uh, remember we looked at this uh, passage a few weeks back, the transfiguration Jesus revealed in his glory. The day after this, after they had come down the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said, You faithless and corrupt people, How long must I be with you and put up with you? Then he said to the man, bring your son here. As the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. Then he gave him back to his father. Or gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. While everyone was marvelling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it and they were afraid to ask him about it. 
Verse 46. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. Now, I think what we get here, right at the end of this passage in verse 46, is one of two things. Number one is possibly the most stupid conversation in the entire history of the world. The context for the conversation is this. Peter, earlier on in this chapter, has finally realised that Jesus is none other than God himself come down into human history. Then, if you remember, Jesus has been transfigured in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he comes down the mountain the next day, casts a demon out of a guy. We see that awe gripped all the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. Jesus then quotes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, claiming that he himself is the promised Son of Man, the promised Messiah. And then the disciples, you know, as razor sharp as usual, are sitting around asking one another, well, I wonder which one of us is the greatest? Well, probably Jesus. It's kind of like a whole bunch of jockeys who happen to have a seven-foot-tall friend, and they're all debating with one another which of them is going to be the tallest as if that wasn't already patently obvious. Now, you could read this text that way. Like, what an utterly ridiculous conversation to have with Jesus. Which one of us is the greatest? Obviously, it's Jesus. In which case, this may well be the most irrelevant conversation in the history of the world. That could be what's happening here. But here's what I think is really going on in Luke 9. I think what's going on here is that Jesus is clearly great, and he has revealed something of his greatness. And being exposed to the greatness of Jesus inspires in the disciples a longing, a craving in themselves for greatness. I mean, think about it. Isn't that how it tends to work? How many of you, you see greatness and you're inspired to respond to it. Perhaps you're a musician, and you go to a concert or a show, or you download the latest Justin Bieber album, and all of a sudden you're like, I've got to practice some more. I've got to get better. That was amazing. I I don't know if I could ever do that, but I definitely want to try. Or you play football, or kind of play football, or you used to play football and now you just do all the moves on FIFA, uh, and you see maybe the, the, the winner of goal of the month on match of the day, and you think, that's amazing, I've got to go out and try that. And you try it once, and then you need physio for the rest of your life. But at least for a moment, it inspires you to try something great. Or how many of you have ever watched an episode of the Great British Bake Off And all of a sudden, you're in the kitchen trying. It's like, how can I make this cake into a space rocket that literally takes off? You're inspired by it. So you try to up your game. You try to improve your behaviour. You try and do better. I think that's probably the explanation for what's going on here. Jesus is revealed in glory. He has exposed his disciples to something of his greatness. And the disciples realise, man, there's so much more that we could be and do and know. We've got to up our game. What does greatness look like for us? 
How can we pursue greatness? And the reason, ultimately, I, I don't think this is a stupid conversation, is because Jesus doesn't rebuke them. And read the Gospels, he actually rebukes them a whole lot. Because these guys are a bit like we are sometimes. But they still have a whole lot of work that needs to be done on them. And so Jesus regularly has to come along and correct them. But here, in this moment, he doesn't. He doesn't come and say, well, what a ridiculous idea that you want to be great. Instead, he comes and says, let me share with you how to do that. He he doesn't rebuke them, rather he instructs them. And here's what he says, verse 47, but Jesus knew their thoughts And so he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. So the disciples are saying, we want to be great. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Whatever you do, please do not aspire to greatness. That is really dangerous. Neither does he say, well, just go ahead and pursue the kind of greatness that the rest of the world is pursuing. No, he says, okay, if you're serious about this, let me tell you how to be truly great the end of the day, that is a decent motivation and ambition. So let me tell you how to do that. Let me tell you how to achieve genuine greatness. And he goes into the crowd and he pulls out a child. Now that would have been totally unexpected because people back in that day really didn't have a whole lot of time for children. In Judaism, children under the age of 12 couldn't be taught the scriptures and so to spend time with them was widely considered to be a waste of time which I guess is why throughout the gospels the disciples are constantly trying to dissuade and prevent children from coming anywhere near Jesus much to his dismay I hasten to add and so Jesus here uses this unlikely illustration of a small child to challenge the way that people are evaluated His point is that there is greatness to be found in the very least. And if there is greatness in the very least, then there is greatness to be found in everyone. In other words, all people count. Everyone counts. While comparison counts for nothing. It's like Jesus cuts right across this unhealthy dispute among his disciples. They're all arguing, which one of us is going to be the greatest? But that's not healthy behaviour. The truth is you should learn from other people, but you shouldn't be constantly comparing yourself with them. You see, unhealthy comparison of ourselves with others leads to one of two things, either pride or despair. Pride, I'm more attractive than they are. I'm smarter than them. I'm funnier than them. I'm more athletic than them. I'm more successful than they'll ever be. I'm wiser than they are. I'm just better than them. Pride or despair? 
I'm not as attractive as they are. I'm not as smart as them. I'm not as rich as them. I'm not as funny as them. I just kind of feel like a loser. I want to plead with you. Please, do not practice unhealthy comparison of yourself with others. Because when there is that kind of competition, it can destroy you. And not only can it destroy you, it it absolutely destroys community. Community is where we serve one another. Competition is where we do battle with one another. And that doesn't lead to peace or service or love or help or support. Certainly doesn't result in anything great. If you genuinely want to be great, please reject unhealthy comparisons with others. I mean, it's pointless. In in focusing their attention on this small child, Jesus is saying that even those we consider to be the least are great in his eyes. Now, I don't know. I'm guessing there are probably people in this room right now who have a very low view of themselves. I believe Jesus would want to look you in the eye right now and say to you, even though you might think yourself the least, in my eyes you are truly great. Let it sink in. You are created in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You bear the very thumbprint of God. You have phenomenal value in his eyes. I think one of the things that God wants to do today is change the way some of us think about ourselves. Now, having said all of that, it's crucial that we see that Jesus doesn't just give us an example here to help us understand a bit more about how great we are. No, he wants us to see that actually he is the means by which we receive greatness. Luke 9 verse 51 is a turning point in the whole storyline of Luke. It says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you like, he begins his march towards the cross at this point. The whole book hinges on this moment. From this point on, everything is suddenly moving towards the cross, where God is going to substitute himself, and he's going to take our sin, our wrongdoing, all the things that prevent us from relating with him, and he's going to give us his righteousness, his right standing with himself through his son Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. All of our sin and all of our idolatry and all of our pride and all of our jealousy and all of our envy and all of our selfishness and self-centeredness, all of it goes on Jesus, and he dies in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. And in exchange, as a free gift, he gives us 
his righteousness, his right standing before his Father. That means that if we're believers here today, through faith, you and I now possess the very righteousness of Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless, obedient, selfless, pure, holy life of Jesus. It's reckoned to be ours. It is credited to our account. I tell you, whatever greatness you aspire to, nothing could ever come anywhere near this. To be found in Christ is to be truly great. Listen, if you grasp this, it changes everything. It must change everything. For starters, we'll want to pursue greatness not for an identity, not so we get an identity, but from our identity in Christ, because we have an identity in Christ. We'll want to pursue greatness not for our righteousness, not try to earn righteousness, but from the righteousness that is given to us in Christ. Not for our glory, but from the glory of God. Not for God's approval, but from God's approval in Christ. Not for the love of God, but from the love of God. Do you see? But because of who we are as dearly loved children of God, because of his lavish grace for us, we we don't have to spend our whole lives trying to impress others and win their approval. We don't anymore have to chase the kind of greatness that everyone else is chasing. Because of Jesus, we have already tasted real, true, genuine greatness. And what we're now called to do is live it out. Live in the good of it. And so, before we finish, I want to show you three things from this passage here in Luke 9 that we can all do to apply this to our lives. If you want your life to be truly great, and which of us doesn't, here's what you need to do. Number one, Humbly serve others even when there's nothing in it for us. Humbly serve others even when there's nothing in it for us. That's pretty much what Jesus is saying here. A few verses earlier, back in verse 23, he has predicted his death and he's told his disciples that if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me but they still don't get it. And so Jesus grabs this little child and he says to his disciples, you are still thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about other people. You're not the least bit concerned about the people on the edges, on the fringe, on the margins. You're overlooking people, whereas you should be serving them. For goodness sake, get your eyes off yourself and start focusing on loving others. For instance, why don't you guys stop arguing and help some kids? I I think Jesus may well say the same thing to us. 
you want to be great? Why don't you start by looking to help some kids? That'd be great. They could use some help. Just to say, we have plenty of space for people to help out in our kids' work here on Sundays. If you want to sign up, have a chat with Michaela or with Russ after the meeting. They would love to chat with you about you getting involved, helping some kids practically here in the church. This also goes way beyond just loving kids. This includes widows and orphans and the elderly and the poor, those with disability, those who are overlooked, those who are neglected and rejected, those who aren't going to advance your social status or your economic standing. There is so much opportunity in front of us. This afternoon we're running Time for Tea, serving between 40 to 50 senior citizens from the local community. We also run a Christians Against Poverty Centre, helping people in the city get out of debt. Those would be great things for you to get involved with. Again, if you want to know more, chat with Russ after the meeting. Maybe you're thinking, well, sounds great, but I haven't got the time. Got more important things to be doing. I want to do something, but I'd rather do something that would get me a little more kudos, that would get me noticed a little more. Listen, this isn't just an optional extra. You know, kind of take it or leave it. No, this is a gospel issue. Because if you think about it, God welcomes the likes of you and me. And his reputation hasn't improved a whole lot by hanging out with us. We bring him absolutely nothing positive that he doesn't already own. But Jesus, if you like, came to hang out with us and love us and be with us and serve us because he's good. And what he says is, if you belong to me, why don't you do that too? Why don't you show people what I'm like? If you want to be truly great, you need to start humbly serving others, even when there's nothing in it for you. Second thing we see in this passage, we see the need to rejoice in the greatness of others. Rejoice in the greatness of of others. Straight after Jesus teaching his disciples about the dangers of comparing themselves with others and failing to see the greatness in even the least of people, they're still getting it all wrong. Verse 49, John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. But they come to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, this other guy is doing great things. He's got this great ministry going on, but he's not one of us. And so we told him to stop. And he won't. Jesus is like, well, does he love me? Is he a good guy? Is he doing a good job? Yeah, he's casting demons out of people. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? But the disciples are like, well, he doesn't go to our church. Or he's not part of our network. 
He's not one of us. He's not one of our group. He, he didn't go through the official training course. He, he didn't fill out one of the official visitor cards. He, he didn't tick all the right boxes. He, he just kind of went and did it. Jesus is like, well, is it working? Yeah. Does this guy love me? Yeah. Are demons actually leaving? Yeah. Good. Because you know what? If it has to be part of our life group, or if it has to be part of our theology, or if it has to be part of our tradition, if it has to be part of our church or our network of churches, then we're never ever going to rejoice when other people are doing great things and God is being gracious to them. It's like instead we get suspicious or envious or jealous or critical instead of saying, praise God, you're helping people and you love Jesus. That's great. Listen, there may well be individuals or churches or organisations that we disagree with on some things. But you know what? If they love Jesus and they have holy ambition and they're pursuing greatness that glorifies God and helps others and God is using them and good things are happening, hallelujah! I mean, we need to praise God wherever the kingdom of God is advancing. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. He's telling them, look, don't be jealous of someone else's greatness. Rejoice in it and learn from it. And then third, if you want your life to be truly great, here's the third thing you need to do. Have even greater ambition. Have even greater ambition. In many respects, Philippians chapter 2, later on in the New Testament, is a great commentary on this passage in Luke 9. Paul in Philippians 2 verse 3 says this, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You know, sometimes I think we can misunderstand humility. We can think that it works against having any kind of drive or ambition. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Christ's humility is very much displayed in action. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. 
In other words, to have the same attitude that Jesus had is to follow an example of action and intention and initiative. It's not like Christ's humility restrained his action. No, it defined it. So it's it's wrong to think of humility as a kind of fabric softener on our aspirations. Smoothing, soothing, softening, tempering our dreams to the point where we're always far too modest to reach for anything. That's not humility. That's more like laziness. Humility should never, ever be an excuse for inactivity. Our humility should harness our ambition, but never hinder it. So if you're here today and you are too humble to dream, maybe you have an incorrect understanding of humility. Lack of godly ambition isn't the humility that God prizes. In the words of one of the great preachers of the last century, John Stott, ambitions for self may be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. You're getting the message. We can be humble and active. In fact, we must be. Talking about your dreams for God isn't proud or arrogant. It's actually essential. And so, I want to conclude this talk by trying to stoke the flames of your ambition. I believe God is looking to ignite some of you with fresh passion to achieve great things for him. I'm telling you, we desperately need more ambition. Without ambition, exploration dies, research stops, our kids are set up to fail, industry stalls, causes fail, civilizations crumble. Most importantly of all, the gospel stands still. We cannot let that happen in the name of humility. If our ambitions are worthy of God's glory, they can never be modest. But whereas most people around us think of ambition as upward mobility, always looking for a step up and being willing to step on others to get it. Biblical ambition points in the other direction, the direction that Christ travelled. Jesus is in very nature God, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And we're called to follow him. We're to empty ourselves of the need for honour and prestige and glory and wealth and possessions and comfort. We're to look out for others' rights ahead of our own. We're to find joy in advancing the success of others. And in it all, we're to look to bring more glory to Jesus. Because here's the bottom line.
hate to say it, but your name really doesn't matter that much, just as my name really doesn't matter that much, just as the name of Church Central, at the end of the day, doesn't matter that much. It's the name of Jesus that matters, because Jesus is God, who became a man and lived humbly and resolutely set out for Jerusalem, choosing to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose in victory to give us new life. And he's been exalted to the highest place. And to read the next few verses here in Philippians 2, Jesus has been given the name above all other names. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you will wind up miserable if all you ever live for is the glory of your own name. I'll be miserable if I just live for the glory of my name. We'll all be miserable if we live for the glory of the name of our church or our ministry or our organisation. Above all of that must be the name of Jesus. Which means that the right answer to every question is this. It's another question. What will exalt the name of Jesus? What will bring maximum glory to Jesus? Because he's the one who deserves it. As William Carey once put it, we're to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So as we actively choose to live this way, living humble lives and attempting great things for the glory of Jesus, we get to experience more of the fullness of Christ. What I want to present to you today is that that is a truly great way to live. I want to invite you to stand if you would, and we're going to pray. I want you just for a moment to reflect on what you've heard and I want you to try and whittle it all down to one or two things that God is wanting you to take away from this message. Just consider, what might God be calling you to do as a result of what you've just heard? I don't know, maybe there's something you need to take off. It might be a low view of yourself might be an unhelpful view of others, a competitive spirit, maybe just constantly critical. Maybe there's something you need to take off. Maybe there's something you need to put on. A new attitude where you go out of your way to serve others. Maybe there's a practical application of that for you. Maybe there's greater ambition that God wants to fuel in you. And right now he's wanting to just place in your mind thoughts of, of what he wants you to do for him and his glory. Great exploits of faith for him in your workplace, in your school, in your family, with your friends, in the church. 
Maybe there are people here and you come this morning and you say, in all honesty, you don't really know the Jesus that I've been talking about. Maybe as I've been speaking, it's like he's been provoking you, he's been challenging you. Maybe the thing you need to do is to seriously get to the bottom of who Jesus is. As a church, we'd love to help you with that. Maybe there's a conversation that needs to be started. Maybe you're there right now and you think, yeah, I want to give my life to this Jesus. We'd love to chat with you and pray for you at the end of the meeting. Just think, what, what is it you need to do? What is it God's calling you to do as a result of this?